0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is more than just another greens product. It's been developed over ten years by doctors and nutritionists. It's the most complete whole food supplement available, with seventy-five ingredients working together to help with five different areas of health. Once it was like having eleven supplements in one, and now as a special deal for my listeners. You can get twenty free travel packs valued at ninety-nine dollars with your first purchase when you go to athleticgreens.com/manliness. Get athleticgreens.com/manliness to claim your special offer today. Don't miss this. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In today's hyper-competitive market in which technology is eating jobs, what sets the successful companies and workers apart from the ones that flounder? Well, my guest today argues it could be something as little as saying hello and helping an old lady with her wheelchair. His name is Tom Peters, and he's a business expert and the author of several books on professional success. His latest is called The Excellence Dividend, meaning the tech tied with work that wows and jobs that last. Today on the show, Tom and I discuss why the human touch and striving for excellence is what will give companies and workers an advantage in today's Market. Tom shares why execution beats strategy in business and in life, how companies can develop a culture of excellence, and why the businesses that put customers first win in the long run. Tom then makes the impassioned case that business managers should see themselves as coaches of excellence and that they have more of an impact on the lives of people than we give them credit for. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash excellencedividend, all one word. Tom Peters, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to be with you, Brett. So you got a new book out, "The Excellence Dividend," meeting the tech tide with work that wows and jobs that last. You published a book or co-authored a book back in I was eighty two, correct? That's correct. That was that was the year I was born. Um, not to make you,
1: I am not going to respond.
0: Not to, that. to make you feel old, <laughs> um, but it was uh, <laughs> in search of excellence. Tell for those who aren't familiar with that that book, what was the main thesis of it and And after that, how is the excellence dividend sort of a continuation of that thesis? Or maybe it's different.
1: I'll do this as quickly as I can. The Americans came out of World War II in relatively good shape. No bombed landscape, et cetera, et cetera. We ruled the world. And starting in the 70s, the Japanese started to wake up and send products over. And they were better products. And we bought them. And it was shipping, it was steel, and that's one thing, but then suddenly it was automobiles, and automobiles are sort of what Americans stand for. And the Japanese magic was, in simple terms, cars that work. And a couple of years, three years before Insurgents, a couple of Harvard Business School professors had written an article in the Harvard Business Review, and it was called Managing Our Way to Economic Decline. And they said, as, and it's the same words we frequently hear today about business schools, they said, we're spending too much time about finance and marketing. We're not spending enough time paying attention to the people who actually build the automobiles. And so that was the context into which the, uh, the, you know, the book came. When Bob Waterman and I started our research on In Search of Excellence, the thesis was that criticisms of American management were very accurate. But there were still some people who were doing it incredibly well. And companies like 3M, companies like Hewlett-Packard, a very much smaller Hewlett-Packard at the time, and so on. And so we wrote about the good guys. And as to the word excellence, it really has, for me, a funny kind of history. I had a presentation to give at McKinsey, and I hadn't written it, but I did have to go to the San Francisco Ballet with my wife and it was a magnificent performance, and I'm not sure what happened next, but I was starting to work on the presentation, and I thought, isn't it weird? We use the word excellence with ballet, with theater, with football, with baseball, with basketball, with swimming. We never use the word excellence and business together, which is insane, because a business of two people or 2,000 people is a collection of human beings attempting to get something done useful. And so why the hell can't you use the words business and excellence in the same sentence? And it was off to the races after that. I mean, there was a lot of steps in between. Fundamentally, that's where the word came from. And my passion for excellence, to steal my own second book title, has not only diminished, but it's increased. And the reason this book came about is my belief that, Excellence and the mission of excellence are, in fact, by far the best way. I hate to use the word "defend ourselves." The best way to deal with this tsunami of technology that's that's heading our way. And there's a little story I'll tell you, if I may. I'm flying from Albany, New York, to BWI to Washington, and in the morning, and flying on Southwest, which is my habit whenever I have the chance. Pilots for my plane landed several gates down and they came in late and they were hustling, to put it mildly, to get to my gate and to get onto their plane. And, of course, getting out on time is, you know, is, is a religion. So they're, they're hustling toward the gate. The gate was the gate that you've seen a hundred times and I've seen a thousand times. There were a half a dozen wheelchairs there. So the pilot, who is under pressure, heading for the gate, turns to the woman in the first wheelchair and says, would you mind if I took you down the jetway? I figure I have 7,500 flight legs to my credit, and it was the first time I had ever seen anything like that in my life. And it's little human stuff like that that you remember that sticks in your mind for days, for years, you know, for decades. I remember when I told that story to speech recently, some guy came up to me afterwards and he said, he said, you know, I've never even seen a pilot look at a passenger before they went down the jetway. But that kind of story multiplied by a thousand, I believe will, I believe A is not going to be at least in the short term copied by artificial intelligence and B is the sort of, memorable experience that will allow us to succeed and in fact find excellence in 2018 as much as was the case back in 82. Uh, That's a long-winded answer to your question for which I apologize. No, but. no.
0: That's perfect. So yeah, the first, so back in 82, the, cha- the competition was the Japanese. Right. Um, and now it's robots, artificial intelligence. And the way we can combat that. Yeah, I
1: mean, that's obviously a gross oversimplification. Right, exactly. In various industries, we're getting nailed by the Chinese. It's funny, a statistic that I've got in the book is we assume that American workers are losing their jobs to Chinese workers. Well, the real reality is over the course of the last, I think it's 15 or 20 years, the Chinese have lost $25 manufacturing jobs or a third of their entire manufacturing population you know the guys who make the apple computer foxconn you know i I saw a headline a couple of years ago and this also is in the book foxconn placed an order for their production lines for one million robots so this ain't an american story it's an american story of our competitors in china and so on
0: so where we can Differentiate ourselves from robots is doing the human stuff that robots can't do, showing empathy, doing service, things like that. That's where that's what you try to focus on.
1: Yeah, and and you know, let's empathy, service, and so on, but let's stick with hard manufacturing. What in the heck is Apple other than an amazing collection of human touches? You know, we talk about speed, speed, speed. Everybody's gotta get their product out on time and so on. I don't think Steve Jobs ever got. He not only never got a product out on time, but he didn't come with a year or two of getting a product out in time. And why? Because he was working on, oh, those hundreds and thousands of tiny details that made the Apple product today to a significant degree and dramatically then different. There's this wonderful line I came across by Steve Jobs's wife, and she was talking about Steve and Johnny Ive, who is the head of design. And and listen to this sentence carefully. It's really so cool. She said, Steve and Johnny would discuss corners, C-O-R-N-E-R-S, for hours on end. And why has Apple got the market cap it has today? And the answer is, it's got better corners. But the attention to corners in a manufacturing product, to me, is exactly analogous to the pilot who texts the lady in the in the wheelchair down the jetway? And so it's hard products, soft ser- products, it's services, it's across the board.
0: So in the the first section of your book is about execution. And I thought it was interesting. You you that was the primary focus because a lot of times when people think about business or think about starting a business, whether you're a small-time entrepreneur or you're, you know, you know, a bigger guy, you think about strategy. You got to come up with a plan. But you said that, you know, that by actually hurt you in the long run if you focus on strategy first and not execution?
1: Well, I think we can dramatically overdo the strategy thing. Jack Welsh, who was everybody at least for 20 years, once said, he said, what is strategy? He said, strategy is you pick a general direction and then you implement like hell. And I knew Welsh and I knew Welsh's GE. And I will guarantee you that 95% of the action at General Electric was in fact on the implementation end of stuff. I'll tell you the little story that we start the book with and and which I've started virtually every presentation for the last half dozen years. The great hotelier Conrad Hilton was having his career celebrated at some big gala. People got up and told various stories and finally someone ushered Mr. Hilton up to the podium and asked, they said, Mr. Hilton, will you share some of your business secrets with us. And Hilton goes up to the podium, looks out at the audience of grand people, and says, remember to tuck the shower curtain into the bathtub. And with that, he turns and walks off the stage. And the logic behind this is, look, I come to your hotel because of location, location, location. And because you hired this Swiss architect, and it's gorgeous. But every business person loses money on the first transaction and makes their money on transaction two through 22, and the number of times that they recommend through social media or what have you, the hotel to somebody else. I come to your hotel because of where it is. I come back to your hotel because of the shower curtains. And, you know, that's fundamentally the game. The vice chairman of GE in Welsh's time, and subsequently the head of Allied Signal and Allied, was a guy by the name of Larry Bossidy, and I'm going to read you a Bossidy quote. Execution is the job of the business leader. That's fine. Here's the one to pay attention to. The first thing I look for in a job candidate are energy and enthusiasm for execution. Does the candidate talk about the thrill of getting things done, and listen to the next clause, the thrill of getting things done, or does she keep wandering back to strategy and philosophy? Does she detail the obstacles that had to be overcome, the roles played by the people assigned, and so on? And I am not arguing against strategy. I'm just saying the essence of life and the essence of success you know, it, 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 in business is, in fact, Preparation, practice, and execution. And I will go to my grave screaming that at the top of my lungs.
0: Yeah, and I was reading that. I, I thought that you know it wasn't just applicable for business, but also just life in general. Because so I have a, we get a lot of we have a lot of younger guys who listen to the podcast and read the site, and they're always asking for advice. They're like, you know, what should I do with my life? And my general advice is like, just do something, because I think a lot of guys they get stuck in just trying to plan out the next twenty years of their life. And I'm like, look, buddy. It's not going to go according to plan, but you just got to start going in general directions and and things will start opening up.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things when I give advice like that, you know, to to people who are relatively junior is I say one of the great success routes, take some unbelievably crappy assignment and turn it into excellence. You know, some, your, your group of 30 people are going to have a Memorial Day picnic. Nobody wants to manage the damn Memorial Day picnic. And so bright eyed and bushy tail, you say, I'll do this. And you turn that picnic into a circus where people have fun and so on. You don't think that's going to get noticed. And it's, you know, it's a thousand strategies like that of, you know, it's that word excellence, which is still stuck in my head 35 years after the book. But, but make that little thing that other people say, yeah, turn it into excellent.
0: So, I mean, how do you, as a, say, a manager or a business owner, help develop this culture of excellence? Is it something that you can purposely and intentionally inculcate, or is it, do you have to find candidates first who have those attributes, and then that will take care of itself?
1: Well, obviously it's both, but I do believe that, you know, as I say in the book somewhere, excellence is not a long-term aspiration or a hill to climb excellence is the next five minutes, that next act. Thomas Watson was the founder of corporation. And somebody asked him at one point, this was when IBM was at the top of the game for everybody in the world. And they, they said, Mr. Watson, how long does it take to achieve excellence? And he said, one minute. And you know, whoever it was said, huh? And he said, the way you excellence is to promise yourself that you will never again do anything, no matter how small that isn't excellent. And so, you know, that's the story, but I, I, I believe, you know, it's that old one-liner that's tiresome, except that it happens to be accurate, which is called walk the talk. You know, it, when you're dealing with communications to a client or what have you, every single item that comes out of your part of the organization will be startlingly good. And, and it's just, you know, excellence is lived one minute at a time. I mean, think about it. I don't know whether you're a sports fan or not, but I happened to live in the San Francisco Bay Area when the 49ers were at the top of their game. And Bill Walsh was the coach of the 49ers for 10 years. And he wrote a book with the world's best title. And the title was called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And he said the whole focus... Was on the practice, was on making a culture of professionalism in the organization. And if you get that stuff right, then the odds go way up that at the end of the ball game, you will have scored more points than the other guy.
0: So, what skills? I mean, because you can we. You, oh, oh,
1: oh, oh, let me fa- Sorry, I didn't finish up because yeah, the way you ahead. asked the question is you said, or should we find it coming in? Right. And the answer is absolutely. You know, my answer is very boring, both. Remember the little story that I mentioned a couple of minutes about the uh, pilot who took the the lady in the wheelchair down the jetway. Well, why does that happen? Well, it happens because of Herb Kelleher, the founder of Southwest Airlines Approach to Life, et cetera, et cetera. But Colleen Barrett, who was their president, I think she started as a secretary actually, somebody asked her kind of the question you asked me, and she said, "We hire for listening, caring, smiling, saying thank you, and being warm. And we demand those attributes in mechanics and pilots, who in flight attendants, or the people at the front desk. So, and there's another guy heads a, heads a uh, a pharmaceutical company for God's sakes, where you don't think of sweetness and light in general. And it's uh, it's not it's beyond startup, but it's not one of the giants." And somebody asked him the question that you asked me. He said, we only hire nice people. And he said, you know, the reality is, even in the high-level technical jobs, like some you know, PhD microbiologist, he said, there are a lot of PhD microbiologists around, actually. Don't hire the jerks. And his situation, yeah, I mean, it's wonderful. You know, I, I could give you two other examples like that, but the language would be totally inappropriate. A guy who heads a special effects company in the movie world who said, never hire, and the word begins with A, and and so on. And, but this pharmaceutical guy is amazing. He said, look, I interview you. You have this incredible degree from MIT or Berkeley or heaven alone knows where, and I would give my left and right arms to have you on our staff. But. After my conversation with you, you have to do what we call, this is him saying we, you've got to run the gauntlet. And that gauntlet is a dozen short interviews with receptionists, with secretaries, with low-level people in the finance department. And any single one of those people can, in fact, stop you from getting the job if they don't think you're the kind of person who will fit our culture. And that is strong language in a very unexpected place.
0: Yeah. I mean, so this goes, to, yeah, I like that idea that for an employee, the way to differentiate yourself, because everyone probably has a degree, right? If you're going for a job that has a minimum requirement for, you know, for specialties or knowledge, lots of people have that. The thing that's going to separate you from everyone else is this, again, those soft human skills, right? We're going back yeah, to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a la the example of the pharmaceutical company, you know, you can say, well, an airline is a service business, but I'm in the hard-nosed business. Well, there ain't nothing harder than pharmaceuticals. And so this human touch and specialness that gets things done, you know, I'm arguing. Well, let me let me give you another example, which is really mind-blowing to me. Unfortunately, it's not in the book because I came across <laughs> it after the fact. So think of the soft traits now, and I'm going to read this. It's a paragraph. Project Oxygen data from founding in 1998 to 2013 shocked everyone at Google by concluding that among the eight most important of Google's top employees, STEM, the almighty STEM, science, technology, engineering, and ma- mathematics, STEM expertise comes in dead last. The seven top characteristics of the top employees at Google are all soft skills, being a good coach, communicating and listening well, possessing insights into others, including others with different values and points of view, having empathy toward and being supportive of one's colleagues, being a good critical thinker and problem solver, and being able to make connections across complex ideas. So I, I love the idea that, you know I don't know why, but I would say in terms of intellect, I would say that Google is probably the toughest company around and yet, they find that the people who do the best work are, you know, got decent STEM background. I'm sure, but are the people who have the soft skills and back to our original execution conversation, who get things done. And they even found in some further work that the most creative teams. It's it's funny they they categorize their employees, which I don't think is a great idea, but that's another discussion, into A players and B players, and the B player teams outperform the A-player teams. And they outperform the A-player teams, again, because of all these soft skills of, of sharing information and so on, and you end up with more creative projects.
2: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Jeremy here, producer for the AOM Podcast. Support for today's show comes from Starbucks Double Shot, a chilled coffee energy drink that gives you the gusto to go from point A to point done. As a husband, dad to two young kids, podcast producer, I need a lot of energy to not just survive my day, but really own it. And while I'm normally a hot coffee guy, on those blazing summer days, the last thing I want is a steaming hot beverage. Plus, I don't like your standard energy drinks that are loaded with sugar, always have weird off-putting flavors. So what's a busy guy to do? Enter the Starbucks Double Shot. Starts with bold Starbucks coffee and is blended with milk for a smooth, creamy, truly delicious flavor. It's then enhanced with ginseng, guarana, and B vitamins to give you that little extra oomph. Starbucks Double Shot comes in six delicious flavors. Mocha, vanilla, hazelnut, white chocolate, Mexican mocha, and coffee, with that last one being my personal favorite. Starbucks Double Shot. It's energy to do things you actually do find it in your local convenience store.
0: Well, thank you, Jeremy. And this episode's also brought to you in part by Saks Underwear. Saks Underwear is the underwear of the future and they recently released their new undercover collection. The undercover collection from Saks Underwear is made of super soft cotton modal, keeping you cool no matter what. Fabrics breathable, moisture wicking, resistant odor. There's nothing else out there like it. And... We all know Saks is the only men's underwear that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind with the revolutionary ballpark pouch. Got these eternal mesh panels that keeps everything in place and separate. So no more sticking, no more chafing. It's fantastic. What's nice, another nice thing about the undercover collection, they've got, of course, the boxer brief, but they also have a widey tidy version. So if you're a brief man, they got those as well. So check them out. Really comfortable. I love them, especially during those hot summer workouts in the garage gym. Super nice. And we got a special offer for Art of Manliness listeners, here's what you do. Go to saxunderwear.com and use promo code AOM at checkout. That's S-A-X-X. Underwear.com. That's Saks with two X's. Use promo code AOM at checkout. You're going to get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Again, Saksunderwear.com, promo code AOM, $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use that code. And now back to the show. Yeah. And this, I mean, this applies to even kind of what we would consider blue collar work as well. I My experience with hiring contractors for, you know, home, you know, stuff on my house, I'll always go with the guy that you know returns phone calls on time is you know provides excellent service gives me updates on things like just those soft skills i don't and then there's other people like they might be really knowledgeable and good what they do but like they don't return your phone calls they don't keep you updated on the you know, the, the status of the project i'm like that's just super frustrating i'm always going to go with the guy that provides the best customer service
1: i would be more than happy to spend the rest of our conversation on what you just talked about and the reason I say that is the reality is a small share of our employed citizenry, Fortune 500, and 80% of us work in smaller businesses. And I would just like to take every single word you just said and multiply it by a thousand and nod my head and say how much I agree. It's the story I always tell is it's just exactly yours. My wife and I were having a major construction project done and we've gotten some recommendations for builders, and so the builder is coming over to our house for an 11 o'clock meeting. And I just happen to be out in the front yard at 10:45, and there's a hedge that I'm looking. At 10:45, I see a truck pull up around the corner from our house. At 11 o'clock, and honest to God, if I had a track coach's stopwatch. At 11 o'clock, exactly, the guy pulls into my driveway, looks great. He looks great. And by looking great, I'm not talking about he was wearing the kind of suit and tie that you might wear on Wall Street, but, you know, he's he's tidy, he's clean, he looks like he's... It it was just what you said. You know, fundamentally, he had the job. You know, we knew he could build stuff. You know, 10 people had told us that. But it was really his entire was insanely professional, and you could smell it from a mile away. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is I would love to be able to help 500,000 small companies like that pursue excellence, achieve excellence, and each one of them add two employees. And we've just added a million jobs, good jobs to our payroll. I love those companies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've had that experience too with my own business, having, you know, hiring out contract work for like videography or graphic design or things like that. There's tons of those types of people out there. You know, everyone wants to be a graphic well, designer. You know, it, goes,
1: it goes the whole way. Right. It goes the whole way. You know, I, I get paid a lot of money to give a speech, and people think I'm crazy, even people who do what I do, because I, you know, I, I get on a plane and arrive two days later. My speech isn't worth a damn if I don't give it. And, you know, in my view, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really apologize ahead of time. I'm, I'm bragging here, but a couple of times I had flu, but in terms of preventable on-time service, I think I've missed about four speeches out of three or 4,000 and that don't grow on trees, brother. That comes from, you know, knowing that the execution of being there is far more important than the content when I arrive.
0: Right. You got to be a pro. Got to be a pro. Yeah. Um, I love you have this whole section on leadership and how to lead for excellence. I mean, maybe walk us through some of your favorite traits or tactics leaders need to implement.
1: Well, you know, the, the, the the thing about that chapter is I promise in the first paragraph, I'm going to talk about vision. I'm not going to talk about authenticity. I'm not going to talk about uh, disruption. And I call the paragraph, this is very intellectual, or sorry, the chapter is called Some Stuff. And by some stuff, I mean things virtually any leader can do that will make her or him more effective. I'm not arguing against vision. I'm not arguing against authenticity, but all I want to do in that chapter is give people, in this instance, 26 ideas that will, in fact, make them better. And and just take take a couple. Doug Conant was the CEO of Campbell Soup for 10 years. During that 10-year tenure, he wrote to employees 30 thousand handwritten thank you notes that adds up as far as I can tell in terms of about you know about 10 per working day or something like that and and and, and that you know, what do people want most they want to be recognized they want they want to count and you know I don't think there are two more powerful words in this language than thank you you know it's the world's number one motivator so I write about thank you notes I write about my favorite topic, which was in In Search of Excellence in 82, which my co-author Bob Borderman and I found at Hewlett-Packard, and that is MBWA, or Managing by Wandering Around, and too few bosses get out of it. They got a thousand things to do. They're busy as hell, but... You've got to be visible. You've got to hang out. You've got to understand people. You've got to, per your earlier point about excellence and mine, about excellence is one small activity at a time. You've got to illustrate what excellence means. So get out, hang out, spend time. And, and, you know, MBWA is a gift from the gods. And another thing that I say when you're for leaders, when you're dealing with people, what I do is I have this incredibly complicated formula, which I call 14 equals 14. Suppose you're running a training department or a subset of a logistics department with 14 employees. The number one secret to success is to understand that not one of people is anything like any of the rest of those people. They are all radically different. When it comes to a motivation strategy, when it comes to a communication strategy, you must have 14 dramatically tailored different approaches. Now, I don't know how that sounds to people who are listening to us, but here's what I do know. Suppose you have a kid who is eight years old or seven years old and she is in the second grade, right? What is the definition of an excellent second grade teacher? And it is pure and simple the following that teacher understands that each of her 17 kids is totally different than the other 16 kids. And she has 17, you know, subject matter maybe arithmetic, but she has 17 different strategies for dealing with Mary and dealing with Hank and dealing with Joan. And so stuff like 14 equals 14, managing by wandering around, saying thank you, I've got 26 of those. And they don't add up division, vision, but they damn well, each one of you, each one of them make you just a little bit better as a leader. And that's, that's all I want.
0: I mean, and the way you lay this out too, is you, it makes it sound like managers play an important role in the success of a company and in the employee. Cause I think oftentimes managers, you know, thanks to Dilbert and things like that, sort of get <laughs> the stereotype is just, I don't know. Boring, unpleasant, whatever. But managers sound like they can become coaches of excellence.
1: Absolutely, I I make a a grand and bold statement in the in the book somewhere, and I say excellent management is the highest of human aspirations, and an excellent manager can save many more souls over the course of a career. Than a heart surgeon can and what I mean by that is the real role of the leader is to in fact develop people to enhance the ability today their capability for tomorrow and again I get back to that second grade teacher the second grade teacher is in the human development business and so is the first line supervisor in fact in the book I say Uh, First of all, I have a total separate chapter on first-line supervisors, and uh, and I say the full set of first-line supervisors is the number one asset in the organization. I use a military example, and my military example, I was in the Navy for four years, and my military example is if a regimental commander lost all of his lieutenants and captains and majors it would be very, very sad if he lost his sergeants. The game would be over. The sergeants run the army. The chief petty officers run the navy. It's and the stats are there. First line supervision is is highly correlated with productivity, with employee retention, with quality of products. And I, you know, it, it, there was this wonderful line. And so a first line supervisor. And I was listening to a, to the acceptance speech when Robert Altman, the movie director, won a Lifetime Academy Award. And I was writing it down because I, you know, didn't have a transcript or anything. And, I, and Altman said, "The role of the director is to create a space where people can be better than they have been before, better than they have ever dreamed of being." Now, I don't care what anybody feels who is listening to this. I think that is the aspiration that a manager can have. And that manager, and I'm not talking CEOs of big companies, I'm talking smallish companies, that manager over a 10 or 15 year period can honest to gosh, change the life trajectory of hundreds, if not thousands of people. You know probably do a heck of a lot better job or more significant job than the average clergyman and i am just and religious on this topic and i think the topic is five times ten times more important than the in the past because i think i think business in the face of the technology change has and we've always had it but times ten has a moral responsibility your moral responsibility to your employees is that if they work for you for six months or six years, when they leave your employment, they will be better prepared for tomorrow than they would have if they hadn't been with you.
0: I love that. I love that. I think
1: I mean, I'm just I'm I'm, you know, the, so 36 years ago, we wrote in search of excellence. Now I've written the X. Ex- I am furious about this stuff. I am angrier and more energetic. You know, I don't care if I am 200 years old because now we got to do it. We've got to develop people. There's a moral responsibility to develop people. You know, I, I, I start my presentations and I'm reading to you the text of a slide. There is no excuse for not making any organization of any size in any business a great place to work. And I would end that which is not on the slide, With there is no excuse for not having (laughs) your seven-person subset of a training department, your 12-person mechanics area in your car dealership, your eight-person appliance repair company that services homes within probably a 10-mile radius, just no excuse for not making them great places to work where people are growing.
0: Right, and because I mean, people spend like most of their life at work. Yeah, that,
1: yeah, that is so powerful. What you just said. Look, I'm th- I, I am thrilled that you love your children and spend time with your family. That's not the point. The point is that unless you were born with a silver spoon, statistically speaking, you will spend a higher share of your life at work than doing anything else. And then when I use language that might be slightly inappropriate, what I say is if you piss away your work life, you have pissed away your life. And statistically, I'm right. Because as you just said, that's where we spend most of our time. You know, not if daddy had $5 million or what have you, but I love my family, I love my kids, I love my grandkids, I wanna spend as much time with them as possible. But if I wasn't born rich, I'm going to spend more time at work. And oh, how sad. You're throwing your life away.
0: Right. So I love that idea. Is that if you're a manager, knowing that, it's like, what can I do to make these, this person's life, not just like their work, but like their life better?
1: Absolutely. And you know, the other way I put it, and I will not use the language that I use in the book, is if you work your one butt off helping the 10 people who work for you get better, They will work their off, making you more successful. So it's also selfish.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's that that phrase, you know, people don't leave companies, they leave managers.
1: Yeah, I, I just I thought that was that's fantastic. And that comes out of a, you know, really That's hard research, not not just a throwaway line that some management guru came up
0: with. Yeah, well, well, Tom, there's so much more we could talk about, but I I love the points we hit in this podcast. The thing that's going to separate you from the competition and be able to allow you to compete with computers, robots, technology is that human stuff. Absolutely, I I love that.
1: Yeah, I mean, at at least at the the very least, if you focus on that, you'll feel good about yourself. You know, I'm an old guy, and, and I said my standard in life. Is can I walk past a mirror without barfing?
0: That's a good and, standard to have.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm 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 not a very religious person, but I really do think that we are here, whether you believe in God or whether you are an atheist, we are here to help other people, members of our family, extended family. And the other part of it is business also has an incredible responsibility to the communities it's parts parts of. And so I, I'm not religious I do buy that that uh, Altman quote about help people become more than they've been before, more than they've ever dreamed to
0: be. Boy, doesn't that feel good? It Wouldn't does. that feel good? No, for sure. Well, Tom, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Well, they, obviously, any of the sites that allow you to buy books, and I'm not going to mention any names because I'm not going to single anybody out. I'm delighted with whomever sells them. But TomPeters.com, among many other things, has the PowerPoint slides off of every presentation I've given in the last 15 years. And more recently, we've got uh, several annotated presentations that are meant to be companions to the book. And they amplify, you know, they're, they're more like the conversation that you and I scream a little bit louder. And every, you know, there is absolutely nothing in our website, to the best of my knowledge, that you have to pay a penny for. So it's all there, all yours. And in fact, I will consider it a good day when you steal something from me. That That's why I'm here, to be stolen from.
0: That's right. It's all about helping people,
1: right? It comes back to that.
0: Well, Tom, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: It has been my pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: My guest name is Tom Peters. His new book is The Excellence Dividend. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out his site, tompeters.com, where you can find more information about his work as well as some free resources there. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash excellencedividend. We can find links to resources where we can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you've gotten something out of it. appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, please consider, well, first, thank you. And then please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think gets something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.